Hello everyone, welcome back to Eco Insights. I'm Georgia Scar. And I'm Chloe Young. And we're your hosts for today. Today we're here with Bailey Ritter, a woman working hard to protect both the planet and its peoples. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Bailey. Can you start out by telling us about yourself? Thank you, Chloe and Georgia, for having me. This is so exciting. Even though we're like kind of from the same Chicago community, I feel like um, it's so we're living in a world where everyone's zooming, but I hope one day we can do this same kind of conversation, but in person. Um, yeah, like Georgia was saying, my name is Bailey Ritter. Um, I guess a little bit about myself. We were kind of starting out the podcast um, with Georgia and Chloe asking me what kind of an activist I would call myself. And um, I was talking about how I really reject that label, both activism, but kind of really siloing the issues by labeling myself like an ocean advocate, for example, because quite frankly, my, my work, my history, my passion is at the end of the day for our planet um, and its people and protecting them and ensuring that they are abundant, healthy and sustainable for generations to come. And I was joking, but I mean, it's serious, you know, that motto, that kind of mission manifests in so many different ways. Um, every single day, it's something new. Um, and that's what keeps it exciting because I think ultimately, um, when you care about protecting, you know, mother earth, there's just so many facets of it. So, um, it's, yeah, my journey has taken a lot of um, twists and turns in a lot in a lot of cool ways. Um, but I'm a National Geographic Young Explorer. I'm the new found uh, director and founder of a new organization called Everyone's Collective, which I will talk a little bit more about. But I'm also the youth advisor for the Ocean Project. So um, as you can already see, my interests kind of span across both um, you know, ocean work to, you know, inland communities, because that's where I'm from. That's kind of the space that I care a lot about. And so everything that I've done from, you know, starting to nonprofits with my father, both talking about um, endangered species, but also clean water, um, to founding a plastic free shop, which is everyone's collective. Um, but also talking with President Obama's Council on Environmental Quality about protecting spaces in the ocean to speaking at the United Nations General Assembly on plastic pollution, um, to now working at National Geographic or working with National Geographic as a young explorer to, you know, provide even more spaces for young people to get involved with um, my Rise Up webinar that I host um, because there's not enough of us. I know that it, it's been really exciting. I think when I first started, so I'm 23, turning 24, uh, when I first started, I was 10 or 11 um, because my dad, it, it, was, it wasn't something like, oh, I want to be an activist. It was just like I was tagging along to whatever my dad was doing. And at the very core of what he does is is that same mission and motto of protecting planet and people. And so um, now nearly like 13 years later, it's been really cool to see so many more young people being recognized for the the good work that they're doing, but there's still not enough of us. And so that's what I, right now, my current work revolves around providing space and creating opportunities for even more young people to go, wait a second, I have it in me to also make a change. And I might not be creative, but maybe I can lend my skills here to this part of the movement. I might not be a public speaker, but I can totally rock this. And so that's what I try to do um, to this day and, and, and everything that I've done is um, get to that core of how can we invite even more people to be involved um, and, and how can we give back to this planet that sustains all life. So um, we'll get into, I guess, the more specifics of um, my journey and my, my how, where, I, where I've been and you know what I'm doing now in the next couple of questions, I guess. But um, yeah, that's kind of the the heart and soul, heart and soul of it all. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that you like don't define it all by like a label, you know, or like a title, because I think there's so much to do with the environment. And you're right, there are two, there aren't enough people doing it. And like, you can literally do so much and it's still somehow all connected. So I love that. And I mean, you mentioned a, a bunch of things you've done, and we're going to talk about that throughout. But one thing you did mention was the ocean. So 
you grew up in a landlocked community. So how were you actually able to connect with the ocean? And why is it important that people understand our impact on the oceans and the importance of the ocean, even if they don't live by it? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I People are like, how how did you connect with the ocean? And it, I didn't, to be completely honest. And that's why I got into the work because somebody quite frankly told me, why do you care? <laughs> why do you care? Like, you're not going to do anything. You don't have the ability to do anything for, for that ocean. Like, there's literally nothing you can do. And that's where my like angsty high schooler self was just like, excuse me like now i'm gonna be like full force this like crazy ocean advocate um and and so yeah it wasn't that i just like you know grew up near the ocean or like one of my relatives had an oat like a home near the ocean and i just like fell in love with it there um no i fell in love with um not being near it if that makes sense because i think there was this idea that I was constantly, you know, being um, just, I guess I, I, I will say a lot of people were just like, if, if people were questioning me why I care, um, a lot of other kids and adults from inland communities are also being questioned. And so, yeah, that's when I, I was just like, okay, how can, how can we make that connection to um inland communities. And for a lot of us, it's our rivers. I mean, I think the statistic is something like 90% of all ocean plastic is from 10 rivers around the world. Um, and so if we aren't looking at that inland connection as a lot of ocean plastic isn't from people who live on the coast and it isn't from people who are um, on the water, you know, boats, fishermen, what have you. Um, if, we, if we can't look at that fact and go, oh my God, we do have so much responsibility. You know, I, I, we're in a really, really sad place, you know? So that's what I try to do is, is make that connection. Um, and I found myself being invited to spaces, um, such as the United Nations General Assembly, but also, um, with President Obama and, um, different corporations like Procter and Gamble, um, and I was still questioned, like, there's no, like, no matter how much I had done, um, no matter who I had talked to, that next person I talked to, I was still questioned. And so um, we still have a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, inland communities automatically seeing that connection. And that all starts with education. Um, education in a lot of ways is the best form of activism. Um, and here in Illinois, Specifically, I think the statistic is like students in Illinois only get about 22 minutes of environmental education a year if their school is, you know, set up for something like that. So um, that's why ocean, I, I, I found a love for the people who the ocean community, ocean activist community is just full of the most passionate people on this planet and have welcomed me, um, this farm girl from a town of only 36 people. Um, as rural Illinois as you can get, um, they've welcomed me with open arms. And so it's been, yeah, it's been exciting. And I think that sort of energy and mentality, um, I really took that to heart. And then, you know, moving forward my, with my own activism, that was something I wanted to impart as well. Um, plus the ocean is like, I mean, you can Google it, right? Like literally Google, how does the ocean support you? Or like, how is the ocean in our everyday lives? And you will literally be stunned <laughs> by, I mean, it's the, the oxygen that we breathe. The very most like foundational part of our existence is, is because of the ocean. And I mean, we would be in a far worse shape in terms of climate change if we didn't have that thing. So it's, you know, it, it was one of those things to me that, yeah, I didn't have this love because I lived on the coast, but like I have this love of life. And if we don't have this thing, a lot of people, a lot of species, a lot of, you know, life is going to be in trouble. So um, that's what kind of lit the fire under my butt. Someone telling me, why should you care? And then actually realizing, you know, how much we do rely and depend and, and um, yeah, rely and depend on the ocean. So yeah, that's what kind of got me started in, in that space. 
That, that's amazing. I think that's such an important message within environmentalism. One kind of realizing, even if you're not living, you know, um, in a thing in a place that is traditionally seen as being impacted by the environmental crises, such as you know the ocean or forests or maybe different countries that are experiencing sea level rise or droughts to climate change, we are still connected to it heavily in some way, shape or form. Whether that be we are experiencing the consequences of it and we're just not aware or we are contributing to the issues such as plastic pollution that you were talking about. And you touched on another really important point about education and the oceans is such a great example of that. with how important the oceans are. And they're so often dismissed because of the lack of education around it. It's like, yeah, you know, we, you know, even from a young age, yeah, we appreciate that the oceans are home to, you know, sharks and stingrays and turtles. That's great. But at the end of the day, if you're talking about corporations or, you know, just people living their day-to-day lives, no one really cares unless you love, you know, turtles and sharks. But once you really go and start to delve into these issues and, you know, talk about the ocean, one of the largest carbon sinks and is really heavily combating climate change and the more you know contribute to overfishing and things like that and you know um, ocean acidification coral bleaching and once we see the larger impact of this then I think that's why documentaries especially are so impactful because within environmentalism what I've realized is everything has a purpose whether you can appreciate it at that time or not if you hedge your bets it's there for a reason you know, whether it's part of the food chain or part of, you know, the carbon cycle, all these different things, it is so, so, so important. And I think that's, you know, at the end of the day, kind of the baseline for environmentalism is just respect because everything does truly have a purpose. And so um, that brings us on to our next question. You talked about plastic pollution and um, how that connects to people not living in the ocean, how we even contribute to that so you mentioned your plastic free shop which is actually going to be in the community you grew up in which is not near the ocean so could you please expand on what this is and why you decided to start it yeah no that's a great question um i kind of like hinted at it so in the part of illinois so i live in central i'm originally from central illinois and live here now um and the town i grew up in is was only 36 people um, and that's mcdowell illinois um obviously when you have 36 people in a town you don't have a school there you don't have anything there so we had to go to pontiac is where it's called um, and that's about 15 minutes away so all these tiny towns just like mcdowell like the one that i like actually live in and we all go to pontiac and that's where i went to school that's where we have our stores and things like that um And, you know, I I, I talked about this the other day, but living in such a rural community, I saw impact, I mean, quite vividly. I mean, my my nearest neighbor, right, is like a mile away and it's literally flat land. It's open. It's there's nothing there because it's it's farmland. Um, And so as a kid, my dad and I would just walk. You know, my parents are both teachers and they had the summers off. So um, I was really lucky that, you know, we would just be able to walk and walk and walk. And the amount of trash that we would find on a daily basis from, I mean, we've, we've found bathtubs, we found toilets, we found jungle gyms, people's animals, um, clothes, um, prescription medication, um, you name it. And we've, and we found it as a kid and I would have this little red wagon and, and we quickly realized we needed more than a little wagon. Um, and that's, that's because ultimately I saw this, the, the same thing that plays out all over the world is this out of sight, out of mind mentality. And so people from other communities didn't think my community mattered, right? Because it looked like nothing, you know, maybe there's a couple of houses, but kind of just looks like the country. And so they would come and dump all of this because they didn't want to see their stuff in, in their yards. Um, so they came and put it in mind because they didn't think anyone would care. And that sort of mentality really set me up on getting to the heart of the plastic pollution um, crisis, um, especially from a rural community standpoint. Um, Pontiac is also home to the second largest landfill in the United States. And so it's, it's insane how much, you know, how 
much I was surrounded by trash and other people's trash as a kid. Um, they truck and bus uh, trash from Chicago to my community and they build it up into this, this mountain. Um, and as a kid, we joked, we called it Mount Trashmore. Like we thought that was like the funniest thing. And we took field trips to go on top of it and look at other people's garbage. Um, that was literally like an event we did. And it was like exciting and crazy cool. Um, and so I'm not saying I'm not blaming my community, but I think we just, a lot of communities like this just don't know better because we can't see better. Um, when you, I've spent so much time and energy in this community, learning from the best of the best. And I'm so, so, so fortunate in that, but it's taken a lot of my time and it's my career, right? Like this is day in and day out, the things that I do. A lot of people don't have that. They, they know, okay, our planet, plastic, no, not a good mix. We need to break free from our relationship with plastic. Um, and we need to get back to more of a sustainable lifestyle. But the amount of time and energy that you do have to spend to actually getting to a place where you do know what that actually looks like and where to get it from and who's who's greenwashing and who's a good business. It's a lot of time and energy. It's a lot. Um, and so that's why I decided to open Everyone's Collective, which is a plastic free shop where I'm from, because ultimately, you know, when I lived in Chicago, there's so many cool and great resources there. Like there's so many cool and great resources in New York and these other places. Um, and no one's really giving my community a, a shot. And so, uh, and communities like mine. Um, and I get it. I moved to Chicago because I love that city. Like it's one of my favorite places on this earth. Um, but I think, you know, we got to start back to where we're from. You know, if we're not taking care of where we're from, where we're going isn't going to be any better or any healthier. So that's why I decided to open it. A lot of people, it's so shocking. A lot of people, when I first started saying, I'm going to open an environmental education center slash plastic free shop right downtown of my town, which is only population 10,000. It's the biggest town around. Um, they were like, are you nuts? Like, why aren't you going to do it in Bloomington normal, for example, which if you're an Illinoisan is um, where Illinois state is, it's a, it's a much bigger uh, city, if you will, not Chicago level, but, um, it's, it's much bigger. And, you know, it's this discounting of smaller communities around, around the globe, um, and the leaving them out that's caused a lot of, um, that's, that's, that's got us to the place we're at right now. I, I truly, I truly believe. And these people, I, now that I'm, I'm opening Saturday, so, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. But um, now that I've been talking about it, people are like, they get it. They're on board. They're excited. So it's just like, you got to give these places a chance and, um, you know, kind of go back to the basics. It's, you know, how can you remove that one thing in your life um, to make your lifestyle a little um, less reliant on trash so or on plastic, which yeah. ultimately is trash. Yeah, definitely. I think you made so many great points there. First with the out of sight, out of mind thing. I think that is like the root of so many problems. You know, I mean, think about like food waste, you know, clothing, like yeah. trash, like and so many more. People say, oh, I'm going to go throw it away. Yeah. Well, and sometimes I ask people, yeah, I said, well, where's that going? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, you should know, <laughs> like that's what you need to be thinking about. And I think that's kind of one of the things that got me to care about the environment was because like when I was like 11, for example, I mean, I, my house wasn't environmentally friendly. We had plastic bottles all the time. Like that, that was my normal. Then as I started to like learn about it and learn about like landfill and like the actual effects that it has mostly on people, that's kind of what got to me. And when I learned what happened after the product and before as well, that's kind of when I got passionate. I was like, oh my God, it's so much more than just me. Like I'm just such a small part of the life of this product, yet I have so much control over it, even though I'm this tiny, tiny part. So I think the more we can kind of acknowledge that, and you're right, that that does start with education and like learning about it. Because if I hadn't learned about it, I would never have changed, you know? And there's so many people and I, you're, I live in Chicago. I have the resources, but I still 
hadn't learned about it. So there's still like such that there's such a huge gap there. And then also, yeah, I think what you mentioned about like starting the um, store, like in your hometown and everything that brings up a good point about like acting local. Like you don't need to live in a Chicago and New York, wherever to make a change. It can literally be anywhere and you can't leave communities out because then the solution is never going to work. You can't just target the big cities because that's not the whole world even though it may feel like it isn't. So yeah, I think that is such a great point. And I love that you are opening that store. And I mean, hopefully more people open similar stores, you know, like around the country as well. That's what I was telling somebody the other day. I'm like, my dream is for everyone to copy this. Yes. Like, <laughs> like I don't care. Like, and so many yeah. more people did it before me, right? Like I'm just bringing the model to where I'm from. And like, if you can copy and paste this where you're from, like, it's yeah. a happy day for me. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about environmentalists too. Like we don't really care if people copy, like, you know, that's the whole point about like having that mission at your core that like, who cares if someone takes your idea and like takes it somewhere else. That's great because that yeah. means it's spreading and it's working and less people are contributing to the environmental crisis. Like that's only a good thing. Yeah. I joke all the time that like my ultimate goal is to be out of a job, right? Yes, like exactly. My, my ultimate goal is to not have to work. And yeah. Just- like, my, yeah, no, I get that as well. Like my ultimate goal is to just have to like, not think about sustainability and like what, the <laughs> yeah. impact of what I'm <laughs> buying. Like, I just want to ignore it. Yeah. Like you just get it. It's just understood. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you also briefly mentioned that you founded the prescription pill and drug disposal program. And I've spoken to you about this. I think that this is so cool. And you started at such a young age with your dad. And so can you tell the listeners as well about what this program actually is and what problem it was solving? Yeah. Um, So I'll kind of give the history. Um, I will preface and say that I am a co-founder in the sense that I was there um, as a, how old was I? Like it started, it was founded in 2007. Um, So I was like 10 um, and I was following my dad around and so, and, and trying to help out as much as, as I could. But long story short is that um, as, as Chloe said, so it's the prescription pill and drug disposal program or P2D2. Um, And it's basically an effort between um, schools, um, police stations, and pharmacies to ultimately remove prescription medication from our waterways and get them out of um, the wrong people's hands. So whether you realize it or not, your prescription medication does expire and you should no longer take it when it does expire. Um, And so in 2007, when... um, so my, my parents had all this leftover medication. They were taking care of my grandmother um, and they had a, had a bunch of her medication. And my mom asked my dad, what do we do with this? Like literally one day before school, what should we do? My dad's like, my dad's a science teacher, um, also an environmentalist, a conservationist, my biggest hero. Um, he looked everywhere. He asked people and every time, I mean, asking the EPA, asking our local water authorities. Um, and they all said, flush it. You got to flush them. That's what, that's what you do. And as an environmentalist, we live on a well. So all of our water, um, it, so long story short, you could look up how a well works. I don't need to explain how a well works, but we drink our, it's a cycle with our water. Uh, We don't have new water coming in. Um, So we, we just didn't think it it just didn't make sense to flush it. Like it's that we knew that water went somewhere. We know that that water goes to a water filtration um, plant and then that water gets reused. Um, So we did some research and did some digging and ultimately found that it ends up in our drinking water and it ends up in our rivers, our streams, in our ocean. Um, if you do flush it, it will go in water that will either be consumed by something or someone um, or lived in by something. <laughs> um, and that just felt, it felt like too, it was astonishing how like nobody was talking about that. I mean, like on a daily basis, even to this day, um, you know, depending on where you're drinking your water from, you're drinking anything from painkillers, ibuprofen. I mean, horse tranquilizer has been found in water, you name it. And so um, 
what my dad and his students with the help of me as like a 10 year old little sidekick um, did was created a, uh, created a way for people to bring back their medication um, to a police station, no questions asked. Um, you know, sometimes it's not people's correct medication. Um, no questions asked, you come, you drop it in a secure location and that medicine then gets taken um, to an incineration plant, um, which is a clean incineration because that energy get, gets used to um, uh, power homes in the local community. And so we we started in again in our in our hometown because you know at the core of what we what my dad my dad has passed on to me both my parents have passed on to me is to give back to where you're from and really you know enrich the very place that has enriched you um, and so we just started here we had no intention of doing anything with it <laughs> we just were like it's it solves our problem here and we're happy. Um, and then other communities found out about it and, and wanted it. And it's a free program. It's absolutely free. You, to this day, if you do not have a prescription pill drop-off location, you can have a P2D2 in your area. It's absolutely free. Um, we wrote a piece of legislation that allows it to be free. So every drug offense, um, meaning, so if you're found with prescription pills that aren't yours, um, you have to pay a fine if you get caught. Um, and that money goes to the program to allow it to be free um, for anyone who wants to start a location. So um, it grew really quickly. Um, we would travel every summer. We had a camper. We would travel across the US every summer um, to these different little communities that kind of resembled Pontiac to help them and celebrate them putting in a, a drop box. And, you know, it really started out as an environmental program, um, you know, clean water and ensuring this doesn't. Um, both go into our drinking water, but also affect because we found that it was um, causing um, defor deformation in, in um, things like frogs and turtles. And um, so not only was it an environmental thing, you know, as we started traveling, we, I spoke with so many parents and people who were so, they would cry uh, because they were so thankful because they were afraid of their homes being broken into, right? The um, opioid epidemic, it's its own thing. <laughs> like I, it, it's, it's a beast and it's plaguing our country and um, it's plaguing the world. So, you know, all these people who had now finally had a place where they could give their medication and not be so afraid that somebody was gonna break into their home again. Um, yeah, that really touched me and showed the intersectionality between nearly everything that we do right so i find if you're doing good there's you're doing good at the intersection of a lot of things and if you can call that intersection out and support people who are also at the intersection um yeah it, it's really fulfilling and it, it's really meaningful work so yeah that's a little bit about that program i think i don't know the current state count it's in six countries and i believe 35 or 36 states so um, yeah, find a P2D2 location near you. If you don't have one, start one. That's my piece. Yes. I love that. No, I think it's such an interesting like nonprofit and project and everything because it's so unique and yeah. it really does like solve the problem. And I think that just like the way it kind of grew organically as well just shows that like anything you start like can be super small. And then like if you solve a problem with it, like if there is a direct impact that it has, it can easily grow. And I mean, that project as well, like it's so scalable, you know, like it's easy to bring places. It's not like a, like a huge issue, you know? And I, yeah. that's one thing that I, that I love about it. And you mentioned that you worked on that with your dad. I'm pretty sure you also worked on this next project with your dad, which was Operation Endangered Species. So can you expand on what this is and the story behind it as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, there's a theme. Um, I'm now working on more stuff with my dad, which is really exciting. Like I said, he's my biggest hero and the person that, yeah, taught me everything I know. Um, so yeah, this next project, I was much older. I was really... I would say I was really at the foundation of, of um, getting this organization up and running um, with a couple friends of mine, with people um, 
there's so many people, right? Like in anything you do, there's so many more people a part of it than just you. So I'm really just a spokesperson at this point, but Operation Endangered Species. So I joke um, that when I was like in eighth grade, um, I would tell people I wanted to go to college to be Bindi Irwin, um, which yeah, isn't a thing. Um, But at the core of that is I wanted to like essentially live in the rainforest and protect animals. Like I was just like, I want to save the jaguars. Like I want to like, you know, be in these really exotic, beautiful places. And it dawned on us, um, a couple of my friends who were, we were all in my dad's class. Um, he teaches high school science. Um, it all dawned on us that there were species in our own backyard that were also losing out right like who are who are losing their homes losing their populations um yeah losing their history in a, in a lot of ways um as illinois especially is a really biodiverse rich place that has been um unfortunately taken over by agriculture and not in the like small farmer sense but in the like big ag sense uh, the bad kind. Um, I don't mean to shame agriculture at all, but um, anyway, so we were like, why, why can't we do something in our own backyards? And so we literally, this sounds so lame. I wish it was cooler, but we like looked at a list of um, endangered species. And um, one of the people, one of the, one of my friends, one of the people in the class said, what about this one? He kind of has a face only its mother could love. So we really should protect that one. It it literally is like the ugliest cute thing I've ever seen. We got to help him out. And so we were like, yeah, that is the ugliest cute thing I've ever seen. We really need to help this ugly thing out. And it was the alligator snapping turtle. And um, (laughs) there, there's, so the alligator snapping turtle has been critically um, endangered since like the 1970s, right? Like people, they're they're different than a common snapping turtle, um, equally as gnarly in terms of um, being dangerous. Um, you do not want to mess with one of these in the wild, uh, but people um, stole their eggs um, and and use them for um, meat. In a lot of in a lot of senses, so um, one hadn't been seen naturally in the wild since like I think the 1980s, right? Uh, 1970s, 1980s, and so um, there are alligator snapping turtles from other states um, because it's it's central um, to the Midwest, and so we tried to convince um, the state of Illinois to give us the last remaining alligator snapping turtles that they had, and they said no. and so we're like okay what's another way we could do it so ultimately we ended up um, partnering with uh, both the Illinois um, um, IDNR um, Illinois Department of Natural Resources I should have said that out um, but also the Peoria Zoo and um, a couple of other conservation organizations to obtain um, some alligator snapping turtle um, hatchlings and we at first just started raising them in our class uh, in our own science classrooms um, and then we realized you know we we had to come to this moment of realization as 17 year olds that there are things in our backyard worth protecting. Why don't we give that to young people at the very beginning when they're first finding their love for our planet and finding the things that they cared about? So we're like, let's, let's, we got to get these in like first grade classrooms. And so that's what we did. So, and so many, you know, elementary schools were really excited about it because ultimately through this tiny turtle, right, that was a class pet. They didn't know it was an endangered class pet, (laughs) but a class pet nonetheless. They were able to have conversations around his home in the wild. It's having a hard time. He's losing it. He doesn't have many friends left, right? Like having these conversations in ways that these kids were like going home to talk to their parents about it. You know, these light bulb moments of like, what are we going to do? Like, we have to help our friend, like Mr. Whatever or whatever they have named it. 
Um, and so currently to this day, um, so the program started in 2012, um, there's about 600 back um, in the wilds here in Illinois. So we have a long way to go to getting it off uh, the endangered list at all. Um, but it's, yeah, I want to go back, you know, to what you were saying, Chloe, not very long ago is that it was kids who were like, had an idea, kept the idea going. It got crazier, contacted people and made it happen. Like, I think that is at the root of a lot of my story is, and, and things that I've been a part of. It's just been like, this sounds cool. Let's go. Let's contact people who could help us out, you know, and not being afraid of the limitations, but really, you know, catapulting past any brick wall um, and knowing who who's in your corner and what is at the heart of you, what you care about and what, what you're trying to do. So, yeah, that's one of my favorites so, there. So since my class, um, every new class of my dad's works on the project and kind of takes it to the next level. So um from writing songs to you name it, they're still doing a lot of cool work. So yeah, it's one of my favorites. That's amazing. That's so inspiring. And I think that's a really important message about teaching kids this from a young age, because it is those light bulb moments that unfortunately many people don't have until a much older age. And this doesn't need to be like complex scientific or legal theories. This is just a basic understanding of that, you know, respect that I was talking about earlier of, you know, kind of what is the concept of habitat loss? You know, there's some concepts that I think are easier for, uh, you know, much younger people to understand, you know, recycling, plastic pollution, habitat loss, you know, ECI has worked with a lot of kind of elementary school kids kind of explaining to them and it's once you plant that seed they're so passionate about it and you know we were teaching um uh probably about third graders fourth graders about upcycling and what the concept of upcycling and why do we want to reuse things instead of just throwing them away because especially if that's all you know you know using single-use things and throwing them away why would you think any different you know you're six why are you going to think of well actually that said I think young kids are actually great upcyclers naturally yeah. you know you give them a box they can turn it into anything exactly yeah no definitely and I think like the way you teach young kids I think shouldn't be applied to adults too right because like the way you were kind of explaining it right like you you show them something that they love they're passionate about and you relate it to them and I think sometimes the issue with like teaching adults about environmentalism is you just say like the world's gonna end you know and then they're like oh no but then they just kind of get scared and like they're not passionate about it but like with young kids I feel like we oftentimes approach in this way that works and we can almost take that and bring it up to a higher level and connect it to what people love and what they already are connected with yeah I feel like the pressure put on adults is a it's your fault pressure and with kids it's a you're the solution um so I love that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We need to translate some of this stuff to adults as well. Definitely. I agree. And something, at least when I was younger, that really helped turn these kind of issues into solutions and made me really passionate about the environment, especially from such a young age, was National Geographic. And that brings us on to our next questions. You're a young explorer at National Geographic. So can you expand on what this experience is and how it's influenced you? Yeah, no, I was the same way. I was the kid who, I mean, cut out and taped photos from National Geographic to my wall. Um, my dad got it as a kid, um, or my dad got it when I was a kid. He was subscribed. Um, and that was our favorite thing to do was read it. My sister and I would pretend we were explorers and go out in our backyard and like pretend to discover species when it was just like, a worm but we would like make a name up for it like it was this newfound thing um so national geographic for sure for me as well was my like first it was my first i think connection to oh my god people do this people are with the planet and animals for like a living like you could do this like it was my first connection like that you could be something um and like actually dedicate like your life to learning about our planet and taking care of it. And so um, when I was asked to apply to be a young explorer, it was one of this moment where it was like, it, it's still a pinch me moment even saying that. And so my National Geographic Young Explorer program is the Rise Up webinar. Um, ultimately, 
you know, something that I explained to National Geographic is they are like probably us three here and maybe you if you're listening. Um, I We're all surrounded constantly by people who get it, who just get it. Um, and Nat Geo, they really cater to people who get it, right? Like their magazines are for people who are at a level that's like, we're, we're saving the planet. Like there's no real foundational information in that magazine, right? Like it's like way advanced in like really cool ways. Um, so unless you're reading like Nat Geo kids, you're not getting much like foundational stuff. And so the things that I was telling them was, I think Gen Z has this reputation that we're just like the most socially woke, like, young people in the world. Like we're the most socially woke generation ever. Um, and that's not the case, right? Like, yeah, we do have more access to information than previous generations. Um, and and the science today is, I mean, spectacular, but there's still a lot of young people who a don't get it. Uh, but what I was finding, it wasn't that they didn't get it, they didn't see how they fit in. And so that's what the Rise Up webinar um, is at its core, is an opportunity to really go back to the foundational stuff, but provide opportunities for even more young people to connect with a topic. So my last, I had a webinar last night and it was about the New York seascape and actually what kind of animals are found in New York. I mean, like whales are found in New York and like, that's an insane thing, right? Like. I think about Chicago and Lake Michigan, like there are so many weird little creatures in there. Like there's a bunch of wildlife and um, we don't realize how close we are to it and how close we are to impacting it. And so, um, yeah, I'm really fortunate that uh, Nat Geo decided, you know, that this was a worthy cause. I, you know, some of my other fellow young explorers are like feeding their entire communities, right? Like they're the most insane like cool people on this earth. And I was like, I'm just doing a webinar. Like, I don't know if it's going to be as good as someone who's like, whose garden literally is like feeding 10,000 people every day. Like, I don't know how I could compete with that. And they were so, so good about being like, you're providing free education, accessible education, free connections to scientists and people working and doing this work around the world. I, I think about it as like the fertilizer to the change maker garden. Right. Um, and it was a, to me, a moment of no project, no idea is too small. Um, no matter what that platform looks like, whether you're engaging people on a podcast or literally feeding your entire community, um, it's all work that matters and it's important and we need it. And it's doing more good for our planet than I think any of us realize. So um, yeah, I'm really fortunate that, yeah, Nat- National Geographic took a chance on this um, and is supporting it. And yeah, it's, it's, I've learned so much. I did not, I learned last night that the horseshoe crab is closer to an arachnid than it is to an actual crab. So it's an excuse, I guess, for me to meet cool people and learn and like talk about things happening around the world. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm super fortunate to be a part of that community. Yeah, I love that project because like I kind of mentioned this before, like I wasn't an environmentalist as a child. I wasn't an environmentalist really until like eighth grade. So I thought National Geographic like it was cool, but I wasn't super engaged with it, you know, because I, it was a little bit scary and just like I wasn't already passionate about it. So I love what you're doing because I think it's so necessary to like get people who aren't already in it into it um because that's like we we do need a larger scale solution and the way and i think change is so scary and the environmental crises requires change which means it's going to take a lot of work at the education level in order to get people to be okay with this change and to be accepting and to really embrace the change as well so i think that project's incredible no i think environmentalists has a get get a rap for being like only the loud, like, I'm gonna knock down, you know, the doors of wherever, and I'm gonna lobby. Environmentalists, I grew up, were just like, 
weird science nerd people who loved pandas, you know, like it's just, that's the thing that I'm trying to do is like, it's not Greta is an activist and environmentalist, but you don't have to be a Greta to like be here. Like you could literally just like frogs and like want to protect frogs and like still join in. Like it's literally whatever makes sense to you. And, you know, the more we can break down the like who an activist is, what this looks like, what a person making a difference looks like, um, the better. <laughs> like, I think our movement will be so far better off if we, yeah, can knock down all of that nonsense. Definitely. And that's so, so, so important. I feel like, especially as, you know, an activist or an organizer or someone who's just very passionate about an issue, it's very easy to get caught up in like an echo chamber or just preaching to the choir, right? Like if you go to an environmental strike, obviously you may have some like counter protesters that come there, but on the whole, the people that come to environmental strike, or maybe you're purchasing National Geographic magazines, um, are people that are already interested in it interested in it and are already on board they're not necessarily climate deniers and you know they may even be you know walking around with a reusable water bottle things like that you know they don't necessarily have to be quote-unquote top level environmentalists even though i don't think that exists but you know if we just help to visualize it but i think that's something that's so important providing that gateway for people to get into it because you're not going to change the world just by talking to people and making people more passionate who are already really passionate because that's kind of they're going to do that by themselves and it's a bit of a a catch-22 because the better you get as an activist or kind of the more you improve or the more passionate you get the more you improve your content make it more advanced but at the same time you kind of make it less accessible for people and the more kind of complex you make your content and as you maybe develop your own knowledge you got to make sure you're still catering to those people that are at the beginning of that journey and I think that what that's what truly makes kind of a good activist I don't like saying these things like good activists or better but you know you, you guys you get the point it's you know what truly makes someone successful in what truly passionate about is putting that message across to people who didn't care about it before Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. So we've kind of been talking about this throughout, but we like to give our listeners kind of like a concrete way where like they can go away from this podcast and be like, okay, here's something I can do. So what are a few things that you think our listeners can do to just connect with environmentalism and the natural world, regardless of where they are physically located? Yeah, no, that's, there's so many answers, right, to this question. I mean, from use a reusable water bottle to like take shorter showers and bike and walk where you can. Like there's so many of those obvious answers. Uh, And maybe they're not as obvious to, you know, a lot of people, but those answers have already been covered, right? Like literally Google, what can I do for the planet? And there will be like 135 resources for you of how to make those tiny actions. Um, But the one that I say all of the time and is truly why, it's the reason my journey has looked the way it has and why, um, you know, I'm starting and opening a plastic free shop, you know, in my rural hometown is look around, look around at, at what's happening. Um, take a second, close everything out, shut your phones off, shut your brain off and see what's happening. Um, because I think we need as a whole to get back to doing what must be done and not continuing to add to what's already happening. Um, there are some great environmentalists and great activists and great people working, working on things. And so if you can find what's going on in your backyard um, and A, see if anyone's working on it or doing something about it, and if not, go and do something about it, man, our earth would be in such a good, good place, right? Like, I think, yeah, I, I truly believe we got to get back to this like community first mentality, you know, both your, your local community, but our global community as well. So look around, see what feels weird, see what feels off. If you're questioning it, I'm sure others are questioning it too. And so talk, start talking about it and see if you can do something. Um, so that's, that's my biggest concrete next step um where anybody is look what needs to be done you know where you're at in your community in our global community see where you fit in um if someone's doing it great 
join them. If no one is, start. Like we need you. Um, and don't be afraid to really break down the, the, the silos. I know, especially climate change has been an especially interesting phenomena for me to watch in the sense at first climate change was this like taboo weird thing that nobody talked about um and now everyone's like well i want to get involved with climate change like i want to get involved with climate change act i want to be a climate change activist and that's fantastic but at the root of fighting climate change are a lot of other things that you can get involved with right, right? like protecting spaces like protecting species like actually not having fossil fuels burning for plastic right like there's so many other things that that mesh so if you can find and really drill down what you care about and see what's going on in your own backyard for you to help out with like literally change made like you are a change maker so yeah also keep doing the tiny little actions um also rest um that's a huge one um nobody told me that <laughs> you know, when I was, especially in high school and college, nobody told me like, there are other cool people holding up the sky. If you sit down for a second, right? Like you are only as good as the energy that you have. So if you are burnt out, you are not, you know, you're not, you're not helping yourself. You're not helping the movement. So get some rest, see what's happening. Um, yeah, tiny actions. You get the gist. Those are my yeah, concrete steps. I guess I should. Yeah, that's wonderful. Those are those are such important messages and I I definitely agree with that that by caring for yourself, you're essentially caring for the cause because you know you that's kind of recharging yourself so you can kind of push on with passionate about and with what you're talking about about just opening opening your eyes that's something that we talk about a lot at ECI and developing a sustainable mindset where you're just using common sense you do not need to be a climate scientist or environmental lawyer to work out that these things that we're doing to the environment whether it is you know plastic or chopping down a tree or you know driving a car if you just think about it for like five seconds you know if for example plastic right you just use common sense I have this thing that is made of this material. I'm throwing it away and this goes into kind of a giant pile and that's not really, nothing's really done with that. You know, just immediately off the bat, you don't need to know all the details. That's not, that's not a good thing. And kind of getting that common sense at first, that'll really spark the chain that will either just get you to change your day-to-day -day life or get you to make kind of changes on a wider scale, whether it be on your local community or the global community that you were talking about. And that's, that's really important. So thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at EcoCircleInt. If you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to check out Season 1, Episode 10, where we interviewed John McNeil, Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University, about the international impact of sustainability throughout history. Thank you.